Well, this evening we are back after a three, two week hiatus. I almost said three. Um, <laughs> and we will uh, be doing Romans 13 this evening and we'll start with prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. So there's a fellow named Jeff who wants to enter the room. We'll see who this is. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Jeff. <laughs> well, sounds good. Okay. Um, Father, did you already do as much intro as you wanted to? Yeah, take it away. Okay. Let me share the screen here. Let's let me find the right screen. That one. Um, so we're, we are in Romans chapter 13 tonight. Um, chapter 12 started the, uh, what's technically known as the paranetical section of the letter. Um, where St. John Chrysostom switches from talking largely about doctrinal matters and the law to talking about how we should order our lives. And um, as we get into chapter 13 here, it's helpful to remember that in the second part of chapter 12, the Apostle Paul has been teaching us how we should relate to our fellow believers and how we should relate to our enemies. And it is in that context then that he continues instructions about how we relate to other folks uh, here at the start of chapter 13. So um, since this seems to be the way that uh, St. John breaks this, could someone kindly read for us the first eight verses of chapter 13? I can. Thank you. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending, continu attending continually to this very thing. 
Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Thank you. Um, you know, I think this passage is a little more straightforward than a lot of Romans. And um, <laughs> that's fair. What's that? I'm going to mute myself so I can keep my giggles to myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, reading through what St. John has to say here, of course, he has lovely things to say, but um, not most of it is not in the nature of making one think, oh, this means something completely different from whatever I, from what I ever imagined. So he begins by making the comment here. He says, um, of this subject, that is submission to authorities, he makes much account in other epistles also, setting subjects under their rulers as household servants are under their masters. And this he does to show that it was not for the subversion of the commonwealth that Christ introduced his laws, but for the better ordering of it, and to teach men not to be taking up unnecessary and unprofitable wars. For the plots that are formed against us for the truth's sake are sufficient, and we have no need to be adding temptations superfluous and unprofitable. So I think that's an interesting comment that uh, the, the, the commands of Christ, the laws of Christ, were not to overthrow the commonwealth, but to order it better. And he notes that this is all commenting really on verse one. Um, this subject, subjection applies to all men, even to apostles and prophets, so far as this does not subvert the faith. Uh, St. John reads this. He seems to see the apostle recognizing that some of his hearers are going to say, you know, we belong to the kingdom of God. We are answering to a higher authority than any earthly authority. You know, is it really appropriate that these earthly rulers should be ruling over us? And he sees the apostle Paul not as denying that we belong to the greater kingdom and that our first allegiance lies there but saying that nevertheless, it does not follow that somehow here we should be ready to, uh, to contradict and rebel against those who are in authority. He does say where it says there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. In his translation, it comes out as power rather than authority. But he says this does not mean that God chooses every ruler, but that God has established that some should rule and others be ruled for the good ordering of society. And he says, by way of analogy, same way, God has ordained and blessed marriage, yet that doesn't mean that he has blessed and approved every marriage out there. There are bad marriages, there are bad rulers. But marriage, fundamentally, he established as a good thing, and ruling and being ruled is also something God established as a good thing, and that is how St. John understands this about there being no authority except from God, is that it doesn't mean that, in fact, God has put his seal on every ruler out there. 
And as far as good order, he comments that equality of honor often leads to strife. So God has in fact made many forms of government and subjection, husbands and wives, sons and fathers, old men and young men, slave and free, ruler and ruled, master and disciple. And even within the human body, not all parts have the same honor, some parts ruling and other parts of the body being ruled. And even among animals and among fishes, you see that there is you know, some kind of an ordering. And so um, he says, Anarchy is always an evil, an evil that leads to confusion. And evidently to avoid the disorder of anarchy, God has established these many different forms of government. Any thoughts or comments so far? Like other passages in Romans, this is a hot uh, topic. This is an especially hot topic in uh, Protestant circles in the past year and a half. <laughs> because, well, obviously. But uh, I think St. John is pretty um, even-handed. <laughs> There's authorities, but that doesn't mean that all authority is God-ordained authority. Because you would get into some serious uh, issues. <laughs> if you were to say in my opinion go extreme in either way because i i've read interpretations of this that try to basically completely actually subvert what seems to be almost and i know there's not just a plain reading but there is kind of a sensible reading of <laughs> of a text well they'll just say like this has nothing to do with obeying any any government and you can go the other direction and say any government and whatever they say is authority put there by god mm -hmm. did i hear you right saying that chrysostom even oh jeff has audio oh yeah i have audio now but i'm driving so this Turner. is scary <laughs> no the first thing well the first thing i thought of was divine right of kings you know where they would claim that they were you know they had the the right to be king because it was God ordained, you know, mm -hmm. like in the Middle Ages is where I went. Right. The d divine right of king is actually a, a fascinating, it's a, actually an early modern thing and not a medieval thing. Aquinas, if my understanding okay. is in the West, they didn't really have that until Protestants came along. <laughs> Right. That, that, okay. That makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. So that actually makes sense. The absolutist form of it comes once you start having the territories and, you know, I forget the, uh, I think it's the Latin, right? Each, each governing principality has to follow the faith of whoever the leader is oh, yeah. as the, uh, mm -hmm. the agreement after it was the 30 year war, the hundred year, whatever the, one of those long yeah. German Franco <laughs> skirmishes where they just kill each other because they're lutheran or reformed and catholic um but if i was hearing correctly read he doesn't just straight up bless a certain type or make sacrosanct a certain type of government right which is also a temptation mm -hmm. for christians to have arguments and think that there is this particular sacrosanct form of government 
um, which is different than having a, a debate about, I think a constitutional monarchy is better than a liberal democratic republic, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm not saying that's my point of view, but I'm just saying like, you can have those political debates, but I see a lot of those political debates, quote unquote, actually become like, no, the God-ordained orthodox form of government is Russian autocracy. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> maybe yeah. there are certain aspects of monarchy that were better. I'm open to that, but I don't know how you can make an argument that there is one form of government that, that yeah. Anyways, mm -hmm. I was just nice to hear St. John not just affirm what I think, but <laughs> seem to make sense, make sense of the text in a way that allows for the various vicissitudes of history, but still there to be reasonable authority that actually rests because God wants to uh, order things in the world <laughs> mm -hmm. for the good. For the good, Chaos yeah. 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 Yep. Jeff, I, I love your audio quality because it sounds like you're calling in on a like a uh, a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> it's through my car phone. I forty. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. <All> right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, Reed. Go. Well, no, I was just gonna say. I, I guess having been through the first 12 chapters with St. John as our lens already, I think I, I read this passage somewhat differently than I might have once upon a time, that this is not St. Paul's treatise on government. This is still pastoral, sort of generally, so, you know, it, it kind of has the same flavor of, well, if you can, as much as depends on you, live at peace with all men. It's kind of like, you know, as much as you can, you know, where it doesn't lead to violating or denying the faith, uh, you know, be subject to the authorities because creating revolutions is not our job. This also makes sense. I remember towards the beginning of Romans, I don't know if you brought it up, Reed, or if I brought it up because of a certain commentary, we were talking about the recent Jewish expulsion from Rome. Mm -hmm. That would make sense if you had had a recent Roman expulsion of Jews because they were scapegoated for something going bad, that you would have this question floating among the community as to what, what do we do? They just kicked us out. Right. Uh, how do we relate to this? Yeah, uh, that's a uh, that's an interesting point that, you know, maybe this was a particular question they really dealt with quite seriously. Well, the emperor said all of our Jewish brethren here had to leave here in the church. Sh should we have somehow resisted that? So anyway, going on, um, St. John points out that in verse two, the apostle puts things very strongly, uh, saying if we uh, resist the authority, uh, we're resisting the ordinance of God and we'll bring judgment on ourselves. And in his translation, the word judgment is damnation. 
So he says our obedience is, we should not view it as we're somehow doing a favor to those who are in authority, but rather it is a debt, it is an obligation. Um, and he says, lest we who are indeed to enjoy the kingdom of God should think that we're being badly treated by being made subject to the rulers. Paul is explaining that by doing that, we're being subject to God. Which for me is a really striking point because, you know, I thought of some of what Archbishop Alexander has to say about providence. And I think the way he put it is, from the point of view of the creature, providence is God. Um, and just sort of learning to take whatever our circumstances are, even maybe to some extent of whether we've brought them on ourselves by our own misdeeds and taking it all as God's provision and providence and discipline. Um, and so, you know, being grateful to him for it all because he intends it all for our good and salvation. And this seems to fit nicely with that. But okay, so God gave us these rulers and submitting to them to the extent that one honorably can, we're submitting to God. And um, St. John also takes it here, and, and I'm still talking on verse two, that the apostles desire here is both to win rulers to the faith and to draw believers to obedience. And this was especially important in Paul's time because there were some slanderers who are accusing the apostles of sedition and subversion and revolution. And so Paul was at some pains to say, this is not what we do as Christians. Um, but then moving on into verse three, he says, the apostles sp spoken strongly. So now he backs off a little and explains that in fact, the rulers are not meant to be a terror to us, but in fact are meant to be uh, friendly to us and beneficial um, because if we do what is good, they're going to praise us for that. Um, again, it seems to me, well, this doesn't necessarily fit everything that happens in our own country in the modern day. You can find yourself highly condemned for doing certain right things, but that again pr provokes me to read this not as the treatise on government, but as pastoral guidance. Because it, it flows from 12, right? Mm -hmm. That has right. all of this practical, and I don't mean that as lower than theoretical, but this is how we act and live. So mm -hmm. it makes sense that we're going to continue because they, they didn't have this. I think we think of ethics and morality as almost always individualistic or then it's something that you have to take a course on in college like business ethics or medical ethics or something <laughs> but if this is very pauline because it's just biblical if you're gonna start talking about the way you're going to be then you have to start talking about the entire cosmic level of things right like you <laughs> you're going to end up talking about how the household is supposed to function at the end of ephesians and colossians and then how that is then going to affect how you interact with the broader world so that you get uh, later, oh, um, the epistle to Diognetus, right? The, um, uh, that famous line about Christians being in the world and, and uh, of the world, but still foreigners 
in a way because their land, you know, their future or their, their homeland was heaven, but they still were with the people. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like they were complete aliens. Right. Yeah, we're like Which foreigners. Which is a, a concern land. for the Roman governors, right? That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Who are these Christians and why don't we kill them? <laughs> but I mean, I think even of, uh, you know, someone like Justin Martyr appealing to the emperor or the senate or whoever whomever he was writing to essentially saying what what are you you know what are you prosecuting us for we aren't violating the laws we are not right. causing rebellions we are your faithful citizens praying for your welfare so it goes on verse 4 um says that in fact the uh, the ruler um when we're doing well praises us does not terrify us so he's not a hindrance but in fact a help to us so we should be glad to be in, in subjection to him and uh he notes that uh, the apostle paul here even calls him a minister um i guess indicating something of the affection with which we're supposed to regard those who rule over, over us or at least attempt to um, he says, for instance, God teaches us to be sober-minded and not to be rapacious and grasping. Well, the laws say the same thing. The ruler sits there to, as a judge to enforce the laws. So, you know, we're kind of on the same side as far as that goes. And, and again, it's easy to think of dramatic exceptions to that in our own time and place. But, you know, I think we're, we're getting the, the general principle here you know, the, the pastoral council with the understanding that, you know, if, if it's not possible to, to go along with this because it would be in violation of our faith, and then we have to pursue a different course. Um, says, uh, it is not the ruler who makes us afraid, but it's our own wickedness that makes us afraid. God has given to the ruler arms to stand guard like a soldier and as a terror to those who commit sin. And he may not know that that's what he's doing, that it's God's law that he's carrying it out, but it's God who has ordained this arrangement. And so he says also the rulers, by both the fear they provoke and the rewards they offer, provide a kind of first instruction to the majority of people who are engrossed in the things of this world and are not greatly influenced by what might be in the world to come. And so by maintaining a certain degree of good civil order, the ruler is teaching people, kind of giving them their first lesson in, in how to behave in ways that might help them ultimately to grasp the ways we behave for the kingdom. In verse five, he goes on, therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So he's saying, well, we've already talked about, you know, God has punishments for those who aren't subject to the authorities. The authorities have punishments. But besides that, our rulers bring us many great benefits and blessings. And so we should readily be subject to them because if we don't, it would appear that we are without a conscience and without feeling towards people who are in fact benefactors to us. Um, In verse six, he talks about paying taxes or in uh, 
Chrysostom's Thomas translation, it's tribute, says that this arrangement in which men pay tribute to kings is an ancient one. And so it's been handed down as something that men began doing because they saw that they benefited from this arrangement, that it was helpful to have rulers who were neglecting their own affairs to attend to public affairs. Um, and so the very fact that we pay taxes or, uh, argues for the goodness of this arrangement and the goodness of the rulers for us. And um, again, uh, verse six talks about the rulers as God's ministers again. Uh, St. John notes that the apostle Paul says the same thing elsewhere, for instance, in 1 Timothy 2, telling us to pray for the rulers that we may, may lead a quiet and peaceful life. And here's a little quote here. He says, for do not tell me of someone who makes an ill use of the thing, but look to the good order that is in the institution itself, and you will see the great wisdom of, of him who enacted this law from the first. So again, he seems to be saying, look, rule and order are better than anarchy. So even if you have a bad ruler, don't despise the existence of rulership itself. Um, continuing on in verses seven and eight, Paul intensifies the instruction um, He says, render not only money to the rulers, but also honor and fear, which he understands to mean a very intense high form of honor, not the fear that comes from a bad conscience. And again, that we do these things as an obligation, not as though we were doing them a favor. Um, we aren't somehow lowering ourselves or diminishing our faith by honoring our rulers, because we have to remember Paul gave these instructions at a time when all the rulers were pagans. Um, and it's true that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we possess much greater privileges, but this life is not the time for us to enjoy and exercise those. In this world, we're strangers and sojourners, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. So for this time, God has given the ruler his power, and it does us no injury, and it does the faith no injury to honor those who are ruling. Um, but there in verse eight, um, we should consider love not something we do as a favor to others, but as a debt, but one that's never paid off that we always owe to our, our brethren, our fellow believers. We're members of one another. And if we lose love, the body is torn to pieces. And um, by this friendship, with one another, our brother helps us to fulfill the whole law because he says there, he who loves has fulfilled the whole law and we ought to love him for that very reason that he's helping us to fulfill the whole law, which I think is a very interesting way to sort of bring the law back into the discussion after St. John, I mean, after uh, St. Paul has done so much to kind of diminish the law. So anyway, that kind of finishes the first section what other thoughts, comments, questions do folks have? You mean I have to pay my taxes? 
Well, maybe. Of all the things, he's he's that <laughs> Paul's that specific, huh? That's right. Yes, I need your I need you to pay your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I've discovered if you make little enough money and have enough children then you, you may actually not pay taxes but that's different yes in the past 10 years i've paid taxes one year <laughs> that's why you keep having children isn't it reed <laughs> <laughs> it's a definite benefit but wasn't actually the motivation now yes 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 <laughs> Okay, well, let us move on then. Uh, would someone be willing to pick up rereading verse 8 and go on through verse 10? I don't mind to do it. Thank you. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Thank you. Um, so Chrysostom has some interesting things to say there. In, uh, oops, wait a minute. I'm jumping to the wrong place. Verse 9. Um, so here... Uh, the apostle is uh, repeating and echoing Christ's words on loving God and loving our neighbor, which he says, on these hang the law and the prophets. Um, so this is very much like what our Lord himself said. And he says, loving our neighbor as ourselves speaks of an intense love. Um, I think it's interesting he doesn't go through some of the modern analysis of, well, this means that you need to love yourself. Or no, it doesn't mean that you need to love. It's like, it just means intense love. And God has brought us near to us, has brought near to us the loving of himself by teaching us that it is very like the love of our neighbor. And so he sees, he goes back to the quote from the, from the Gospels, you know, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It says, these are very close comparisons. They're both speaking of the intensity and completeness of the love. And so part of his provision, his providence to us, is to make our loving of him very similar to that of loving our neighbor. And he says the love, love doesn't merely fulfill the law, but in his translation, it says briefly comprehends it. That is, it expresses and completes it all in just a few words. And so he seems to take it as more than simply, um, well, you know, if you love people, then you end up doing all the commands. He kind of gets it. It's like, no, no, it's like it really, it does more than fulfilling them. It, it, it takes care of them all and beautifully and easily. And in fact, he goes on in verse 10 and talks about this. Love does no harm to the neighbor, so it keeps us from doing evils, but it also helps us in doing good, because when we love someone, it's easy to do good to him. Um, and so he says, the law gave us instruction and moral duties, 
but love makes the fulfillment of them easy, which was the apostle's aim. Thought was really striking because St. John has spoken so often in Romans about how God has taken these things that were commanded and now has given us even harder things to do, but he's made them much easier. For instance, by the giving of the Holy Spirit. Um, so we're supposed to do much more than what the law demanded. But in the same way, well, we have more, some notion of moral duties, how we should treat people. But if we love them, it becomes easy to treat them the way we ought to. And he has kind of a striking quote here. Let us then love one another, since in this way we shall also love God who loves us. So any questions or comments on that section? Or discussion? Sounds like Jesus. Yep. I mean, I suppose this is something that's really struck me of, of late with sort of renewed emphasis that, you know, we in the church have an especial obligation, not just to kind of be friendly with each other, but really to love each other deeply. And, you know, especially in our little Orthodox islands, uh, it's like we really need to take care of each other. It's hard. <laughs> it's pretty hard. Well, it often strikes me, um, you know, someone with whom I might have some inclination to have a dispute or just not like or whatever it might be. And it's like the Sunday at liturgy, he's up there and the Lord's receiving him at his cup. It's like, well, that kind of answers a lot of questions. <laughs> Oh, yeah. that we would have those <laughs> thoughts and take them actually to heart. So, you know, I feel like maybe I'm, I'm, I'm getting the idea, not necessarily that I practice it, but there are a lot of sort of points of dispute and concern and whatever that I just sort of need to drop them. They don't matter. Just concentrate on supporting folks. Anything else? Okay, well then let's do the last section. I've got a couple of really good long quotes from Chrysostom in the last few verses here. So I'm excited about getting to those. My wife's excited. She likes hearing Chrysostom. Um, so would someone be so kind as to read for us verses 11 through 14? I can do that. Thank you. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revel revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness or lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its loss. Thank you. Um, so here St. John points out that uh, the apostle has started calling them to good works again, warning them against listlessness and trying to draw them away from attachment to the things of this life. 
he notes that the apostle also in first uh, corinthians 7 and in hebrews 10 remembering that saint john is completely convinced that hebrews was written by the apostle paul um that in both of these places the apostle speaks of the shortness of the remaining time and uh He's doing this to encourage those that have suffered troubles, toils, and temptations in those places. In Corinth and Hebrews, they've suffered difficulties, and he's trying to encourage them by the shortness of the time. But here he has a different tack on it, that the apostle is trying to wake up people who have fallen asleep or are in danger of it. So first of all, you know, what is it that's near? What is, you know, the time, that's high time, the salvation is near? And he says, well, yes. The resurrection is nearer and judgment and the day that burns as a furnace. And so he says, it's easy, I think, especially for Christians to be zealous and earnest at the beginning of faith. But as year goes on with year to kind of get tired and grow slack. He says the apostle here, however, is saying, though, that we should view it exactly the opposite way, that over time we should become more vigorous in our faith because the end is nearer and the quote here says for the nearer the king may be at hand the more ought they to get themselves in readiness the nearer the prize is the more wide awake ought they to be for the contest since even the racers do this when they are upon the end of the course and towards the receiving of the prize then they rouse themselves up the more so it's the kind of the picture of the runner who's tired but he comes around that last curve and all of a sudden he puts on that last burst of speed because he sees the goal ahead of him. Um, so that's his general take on what this section is up to. Anyone wanna make a comment or raise a question there before I press on? Yeah, I I turned 50 years old in July, and I'm starting to feel the uh, <laughs> I'm starting to feel it, you know. My dad, you're 50. Parents have passed, you know. It's like, boy, um, yeah, <laughs> I'm not young anymore. <laughs> yep. Yeah, just getting weary, just getting worn out. It's uh, gets to be one of the biggest challenges. But I can I can relate to like the the race I ran cross country you know I and and I always like you know our coach said look you may start it doesn't matter how you start it's how you finish right what he would say so well sometimes I think something like that even about the thief on the cross you know of course we have the lovely hymn of how he was saved in a single moment but. It's also occurred to me that what he did was he spent the rest of his life hanging on a cross with Christ, which is sort of the same thing we're called to, right? Take up our cross and follow. He did it the rest of his life. That wasn't long, but he did it really well. Um, so, you know, maybe that's the thing. As we get older, like all the more reason to press on hard. Um, verse 12, I, I have a complete aside here, 
uh, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Just a little bit of, I don't know if it's exactly trivia, but um, there was a German man, Johannes Klepper, with a Jewish wife, who in 1937, as the Nazis were coming to power and things were becoming very dark, uh, wrote a Christmas carol. It, it was a, a poem, Die Nacht ist vorgedrungen, which is to say the night has greatly pressed forward. Uh, it takes its first line from this very verse. And um, another gentleman, Johannes Petzold, set this to music, and it became one of the few really good Christmas German Christmas carols of the 20th century. Um, if you look at the, the Lutheran hymn books from Germany, there are essentially, there's nothing in them from the 20th century for Christmas except for this hymn. Um, so in any case, uh, so verse 12, um, here I've got a long quote from St. John. He says, if then this, if then, hmm, if then this, the present world is ending, and the latter, the world to come, is drawing near, let us do what belongs to the latter and not to the former. And this is again on the, under the heading of drawing us away from the things of this world. For this is what we do in daily life. When we see the night pressing on towards the morning and hear the swallow twittering, we awaken our neighbor, although it is still night. But as soon as the night is actually departing, we hurry each uh, we, we hurry each other up and say, it is day now, and we all set about the works of the day, dressing and leaving our dreams and shaking our, shaking our sleep thoroughly off, that the day may find us ready, and we may not have to begin getting up and stretching ourselves when the sunlight is up. What then we do in that case, that let us do here also. Let us put off imaginings. Let us get clear of the dreams of this present life. Let us lay aside its deep slumber and make virtue our garment. For it is to point out all this that he says, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Yes, for the day is calling us, uh, for the day is calling us to battle array and to the fight. Yet do not fear because you hear of array and arms, for putting on a visible suit of armor is a heavy and hated task. But the armor we are called to put on is desirable, and putting it on is an opportunity worth praying for. For these arms are of light. They will set you forth brighter than the sunbeam and give, you, and give out a great glistening, and they make you secure. For they are arms, and they make you glittering, for they are arms of light. What then? Is there no need for you to fight? Yes, it is needful to fight, yet not to be distressed and toil. For the nature of the arms and the power of the commander make it not a war, but a solemn dance and a feast day. And as the bridegroom goes forth from his chamber with joyous looks, so does he who is defended with these arms, for he is at once soldier and bridegroom. But when the apostle says, the day is at hand, he does not even call it close, but puts it right beside us. So I thought that was a striking passage from St. John. Comments? Yes, go ahead. He's Bob. a rhetorician for sure. <laughs>
he is. And I think it's how it's interesting how often he does call us to the battle. It's like we've been set free. We've things have been made easy, not so that we can rest, but so that we can take up the battle. Continuing in verse 13, uh, he says, let us um, let us walk becomingly is Chrysostom's translation. Properly, it says in the New King James. And first of all, St. John sees in these words, let us, that the apostles making his message more palatable because, palatable because he's making himself one of them. Like, well, let's do this together. Not like he needs to preach at them. He says this word becomingly reflects the Romans' love of public, public esteem. And I know that's something uh, Presbytera Jeannie Constantinou has talked about in her series on Romans about how much the Romans loved glory and how the Apostle Paul sometimes uses that to draw them on to what's good. So the Romans had a great love of being publicly esteemed. And so he's saying, okay, well, you like people to think well of you, live becomingly. Uh, let that that sort of human inclination aid you in behaving well. And he points out that St. Paul does not forbid us to drink wine, but to drink it in excess, that is to be drunk. He does not forbid intimacy between man and woman, but he forbids fornication. Um, and St. John says he begins with drunkenness here because drunkenness does a great deal to kindle all of the other bad things here, such as lust and anger. And then finally getting to verse 14. Um, St. John says, okay, the apostle has stripped us of unbecoming garments, such as drunkenness, lust, and strife. Um, and he's calling us now to something better. And he notes here that first of all, when Paul is speaking of vices, he speaks of works, but when he speaks of virtues, he speaks of arms, because arms give the wearer complete safety and brightness. Yet the apostle here is going to go further and is going to go to something that's truly awe-striking. He wants to give us the Lord, the King himself, as our garment. For he that is clothed with Christ has all virtue. And here I've got another long quote. Again, this is a paraphrased quote to make it more readable. He says, but in saying, put him on, he bids us to be girded with him on every side. As in another place, he says, but if Christ is in you, and again, that Christ may dwell in the inner man. For Christ would have our soul to be a dwelling place for himself and to be himself laid around us as a garment, that he may be all things to us, both from within and without. For he is our fullness, for he is the fullness of him that fills all in all, and the way and the husband, and the bridegroom. For I have espoused you as a chaste virgin to one husband, quoting another passage from the apostle, and a root, and drink, and meat, and life. For Paul says, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And apostle, and high priest, and teacher, and father, and brother, and joint heir, and sharer of the tomb and cross. For it says, we were buried together with him, and planted together in the likeness of his death, and a suppliant, and he quotes, for we are ambassadors in Christ's stead, 
and an advocate to the Father, for he also intercedes for us. It says, and house and inhabitant, for he says, he that abides in me and I in him, and a friend, for he says, you are my friends, and a foundation and a cornerstone. And we are his members and his heritage and building and branches and fellow workers. For what is there that he does not want to be to us when he makes us cleave and fit on to him in every way? And this is a sign of one loving exceedingly. Be persuaded then and rousing yourself up from sleep, put Christ on. And when you have done so, give your flesh up to his bridle. For this is what he intimates in saying, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So that's a striking and stunning passage on Christ being out, the all in all to us. And as he so typically does, what St. John sees in that is an expression of the depths of Christ's love for us. All inspired by this one phrase, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Applause. So, comments or questions? Okay. Well, let's see. A few wrapping up comments here then. He notes that Paul forbids not drinking, but drinking to excess, and not marrying, but fornication. And so here, he does not say make no provision for the flesh. What he says is, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust, which is to say, don't go beyond what is necessary for the flesh. And he says, for instance, he, uh, the apostle is talking about the same sort of thing when he tells Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. So the same way here, the apostle is instructing us to take care of ourselves for what is necessary for health, but not what's necessary for extravagance which of course isn't necessary. And he says, now, if you look at those who are drunken and those who are gluttons and those who pride themselves on how they dress and those who are effeminate and those who live a soft life, they're not pursuing health, they're pursuing extravagance and kindling greater desires. But he says, we who have put on Christ should tune away all such things and seek merely what keeps our bodies healthy. But, we should go further than just that. Instead, devoting all of our efforts, everything beyond what's just necessary for the health of the body, we should devote those to the care of spiritual things. And this is what will allow us to rouse ourselves from sleep, not being weighed down by many desires. For he says, the present life is asleep, and the things in it are no different from dreams. Sleepers often say and see what is not healthful or what's disgraceful. But when they awaken, they are free of the disgrace and suffer no punishment. But we, if we do what is disgraceful in the sleep of this present life, will suffer immortal shame and punishment. Again, again, the man who dreams of being rich awakens to find himself in no way profited by the dream. But we, if we grow rich in this life, even before we awaken by departing to the other life, we will find we have gained nothing. And so he says, let us then shake off this evil sleep, for the day finds us sleeping. Well, sorry, for if the day finds us sleeping, a deathless death will succeed. 
and before that day we shall be open to the attacks of all the enemies in this world, both men and devils, and if they want to undo us, there is nobody to hinder them. So I think that part of what he's working with here um, in, in verse 12, talking about the night is far spent and let us cast off the works of darkness, is not so much, oh, wicked things are hidden in the dark, so much as men sleep at night and they have dreams in the darkness. And that's what we're like if we're walking through this world, taking the things of this world as though they were reality. It's then like we're walking in the dark, we're dreaming, mistaking our dreams for reality, which is sort of a, a different take than I would have hit on in verse 12. Anyway, tell me what you think. I can, I'm picking up what he's putting down. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, I think it's a good um, way to look at that verse 12. I mean, it, I think it wakens, it, it just kind of makes it easier to understand. I mean, I can read verse 12 and just read it and go, yeah, okay, this is just, you know, try to just read it sensibly. Yeah, okay, cast off the works of darkness. But to think of it like, yeah, the, the, you know, the works of darkness are like when you're sleeping and you're dreaming and you're thinking that's reality and it's the opposite, you know, so yeah, it's like wake up. So yeah, it helps. It helps. I think put it for lack of a better term to, it helps put it in a different light. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> That's all I have. If anyone has other thoughts, I'd love to hear them. I feel like I'll just echo. <laughs> <laughs> it is always refreshing just to come back to scripture that you read, like I read Romans through years ago and just to go through it again and just to remember how much is in this book. Cause so much, especially as we get to the end, it's not usually the parts that get read. I usually end up in Romans 8 or somewhere in there, but there's a lot of good stuff at the end. Yes. Yeah. It sounds a lot like Ephesians and Colossians. Mm -hmm. And you certainly see how the apostle, I mean, he, he has very much a pattern, which partly reflects the, just the, the, the style of writing letters in his day, but still a very definite style of the sort of the sort of things he talks about and where he talks about them in each letter. And you see St. John Chrysostom sort of imitating that in his homilies typically, where he'll, you know, even on, on his homily on the passage we just finished reading, you know, he takes that 
about, you know, not being asleep. And he goes off, you know, the rest of his homily is about not sleeping. Let us shake off the sleep. Mm. So he explains the scripture for a while, and then he talks about, here's something you ought to go do with all of this. Mm -hmm. Frankly, you know, it's hard for me to um, even do a Bible study right now. So, but thank you, Reed. This is really good. I like hearing it from John Chrysostom's point of view. Um, when we first converted, I was reading everything I could get my hands on. And then the last, well, the last three or four years, I've, I pretty much just said, I'm just going to, when I go, I'm just going to go to church, take communion and let stuff sink in and listen <laughs> because it's so I'm so cerebral and just being raised Protestant, you know, every yeah. time I read this, it's hard to go back to that original, you know, you know, <laughs> everything just seems, uh, <laughs> you know, like oh, this whole thing about anarchy and government and stuff. Oh man, I, I that would have been that would have been turned so many different ways in the in the church I grew up in. You know about mm -hmm. how do whatever the police tell you to do. Don't question the police. You know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like if you you know as long as you're as long as you're not breaking the law you won't have to worry about anything you know right <laughs> it's it's just and then it's like okay well that may be true but uh you know I don't know there's just so much baggage with this for me and all of this stuff even the love your neighbor stuff right mm -hmm. like it just became middle class uh, morality right right um. So just hearing it this way is really, is really, it's fresh. Glad I came tonight. Well, so good to have you. It was fun to have you uh, joining us from your car. <laughs> <laughs> I'm home now. I'm in the garage, but I'm still on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we've all found this, that, you know, we all have come to Romans with, uh, uh, with tinted glasses from our various Protestant or evangelical backgrounds. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, we'll keep seeing that in Romans if we're left to ourselves. And so it's been so helpful to have St. John here to read it for us differently. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, it's 8.45. I think we've been at it for a pretty good hour. Maybe this would be a good time to call it a night. Indeed. Thank you, I, Reed. I do, yeah, thank you, Reed. I have a question for Father Daniel about uh -oh. liturgical seasons. Okay. <laughs> it's actual from my son, Samuel. He wants to know when, you know, when we, when we took Christ off the cross, um, uh -huh. At Pascha, he wants to know when is he going to be put back on the cross in the church, and I told him more than likely on Pentecost. But because I don't remember, because we've been out of church for a year, I don't know if that's right. Uh, I'll probably put him back on leave taking of Pascha. Leave taking of Pascha, okay, which is 
I believe it's the day. Uh, it's uh, right before Pentecost. It is. Okay. No, sorry. It's right before Ascension. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. See, I was thinking, I was thinking, right. To me, I was thinking Ascension because after Ascension, you know, he, he, he's not here. <laughs> so. Right. He's back on the cross. So, okay, so right, right before, the leaf taking Apostle is right before Ascension. Then, okay. It's the day before. Yep. The day before. Okay, makes sense. I'll let him know. He's really concerned yep. about it. <laughs> so this is one of those things. Um, different Orthodox churches have different ways of doing that. So for most Russian churches don't have a corpus to take off the cross. It's more of a Byzantine thing or Greek thing. Uh, so, uh huh. Uh, most Russian churches they just have a big icon of Christ with the uh, Theotokos and John, uh, and they put it out in the center, and then it's gone. You know, Holy Saturday, uh, and it's just put back where it goes. So there's not this. There's n the variation means there's not too much that you can read into mm -hmm. the corpus not being there. But mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. There's just little varieties <laughs> of differences that exist. So sure. Yep. Anything else? No, that that's it for me. All right. Thank you. Christ is risen, everyone. Indeed, he's risen. Come, come. Everyone, Indeed, everyone he's risen. <laughs> muted. <laughs> <laughs>